over the last couple decades, we've seen uh, the appearance, the rise of uh, a new type of individual, an individual who uh, is known in some ways, but is different and uh, new in others. They are known as the new atheist. Now, a new atheist is different than an old atheist simply in the sense that they're no longer content to simply say there is no God. They have become almost evangelistic in their outreach. They, uh, they're writing books. They are approaching people. They, they even have their own churches, as odd as that may sound. Um, they wanted the, the feel, the connection of people that you get in a church, but they didn't want to worship God. And so they come together and they sing songs and, and do some things that the church kind of is part of who we are, but there, there's no acknowledgement of a higher being. Um, these individuals, um, as I said, they, they, they've written several books. They've, they've, they've reached out. They've tried to connect with the next generation. And you can see a lot of the impact of what they're doing and, and what they're saying in chat sessions, chat rooms, and so forth. Um, whenever uh, I read an article online on, on a site, especially that has a comment section, I like to go down to the comment section just to see how people are kind of responding to the content there. And, and what I see quite often are people who are denying that there is a God, um, mocking the idea that there is a God. And, and there is certainly an appropriateness to responding to them with what we call apologetics. Um, we've covered that in the past, looking at realities about God, about the Word of God, about Christianity and so forth that that have a logic to them, have a reason to them, have a have a, a response to the arguments that are often made. But today, I, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to look uh, in terms of apologetics. I want to look simply at the issue of the fact that the wisdom of God is going to be foolishness to men. It's a, it's a reality we have to acknowledge. If we're ever going to be successful in, I, I believe, winning the new atheist over or any atheist over, I, I don't think we're going to do that necessarily with uh, apologetics arguments. Most of them already have their mind made up in that realm. I think instead what we need to do is we need to start with acknowledgement that there is a sense of foolishness to Christianity. There is a sense of this doesn't make sense in what we believe and what we understand. And I think once we kind of understand that, we, we come to see that God is bigger than our arguments. And if God is bigger than our arguments, then the power by which we work, the power by which we operate, the power by which we engage people who don't believe in him, because becomes something other than our own logic, our own capacity. And I'm convinced that when we really buy into that, when we really begin to accept and understand that we need something more than just our concepts and our arguments and our logic and our reason, that we'll really begin to see the power of Christ at work in changing people's lives. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue uh, our journey here in uh, the book of Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church there at Corinth, and as we've noted uh, a couple times already, it's not uh, what you call your picture-perfect church. 
it's not the church that you would hold up as a uh, this is this is the one we want to represent us. This is the church that we think is is the ideal expression of who Christ is and who Christ would have us be. There are a lot of problems in Corinth. And we've already looked at one of the big problems, the division that was present among the people, each trying to follow their own leader, each trying to follow their own philosophy, their own way, their own priorities. But what we noted as we've seen these problems is that Paul is using these problems as an opportunity to proclaim to the church there in Corinth that they do have a purpose, they do have a place, and they are on the journey to becoming who God has made them. The letter of Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians, if, if nothing else, it should remind us that no matter where you're at, there's hope. No matter where you're at, there's room for growth. No matter where you're at, God is still at work if you have accepted Christ. Now when you look at the reasons people reject the gospel, when you look at the logic of it, you, you see that there's intellectual, logical, intellect, intellectual, I used to be able to say that word, honestly. Intellectual, logical reasons. There's, uh, there's the rejection of the church because of people in the church, there's a rejection of the gospel because it's not exciting enough. Those are the kind of arguments that you run into. And this is nothing new. Paul addresses those very arguments here in our passage today, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1. We read, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jew asked for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, 
but on God's power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that you have moved in such a way to undermine our arrogance, our pride, our self-interest. I thank you, God, that you have revealed our foolishness in your wisdom. And I pray, God, that you would help us this morning to, to better understand how you work in our lives and what you've called us to, who you've called us to be. God, move in our midst here this morning. Draw us to you. Teach us your wisdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Paul here in this argument, he basically makes three statements, three claims about God's so-called foolishness and, and man's wisdom. And in these claims, in, this, in these comparisons, he, he puts forward some truths that I believe that if we grasp, if we hold on to, we can respond to these issues that so often drive people to reject the gospel or reject our message or reject uh, connection with us in some way. I believe we can also find help for ourselves. Because if we're being honest, the very things that drive people away also cause us to question, to doubt, to think twice about some of the things that we believe, some of the things that we hold to. But as we look at Paul's responses here, as we look at Paul's statements here, I believe we'll, we'll come to see, we'll come to understand the very power of God that he advocates for here. I think the first thing that, that Paul does to us in, in our logic, in our, in our place, in our, in our commitments and mindsets is that he undoes our self-reliance with a crucified Messiah. Paul seems to suggest in his writing here, in his text here, that people have become there in Corinth somewhat intellectually ashamed of the gospel that they've responded to Christ and they've, they've come to Christ and they've, they've felt the power of the Holy Spirit. They've, they've experienced what, what we would call today a conversion. They've gone through that. They, they've had the year and a half of ministry with Paul earlier, um, but now they're beginning to kind of feel ashamed. That as they begin to interact with the culture around them, with the city of Corinth, People are asking questions, and they're not really all that certain how to respond. To the Jewish Christians, they're, they're going to their fellow Jews there in the city, and they're, they're talking about these things, and they're talking about who Christ is and what Christ has done and, and so forth, and they're being asked questions about a suffering Messiah. That doesn't make any sense. The one who, according to the book of Deuteronomy, the one who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. How could the one who is supposed to be the anointed one, the one who's to lead us, the one who's to guide us, the one who's to, to usher in a, a new era and a new situation, how can he be cursed? And so the Jewish Christians are beginning to say, yeah, that, that does seem kind of odd to me. And they're not able to, to really answer. 
And on the other hand, you have the Greeks. And the Greek mindset, the, the perspective that's kind of developed coming out of Plato and, and other philosophers such as that, they've come to, to um, recognize a, a stark distinction between the physical and the spiritual. So much so that for some, they say, well, I, I just really need to take care of my body and my, my, that will help my spirit. And others are saying, I can, I can reject my body and that will help my spirit. And others are saying, the spirit's all that goes on, so that's all I need to focus on. But Christianity teaches what? It teaches a physical resurrection. That when Jesus Christ died, he didn't come back just in spirit. He didn't come back as some sort of phantom or something like that. He physically raised from the grave. His body came back. And because of that, it teaches what? One day that's going to happen to us as well. Christianity is not an escaping from this body, not an escaping from this world or this situation. Christianity is a transformation of this body, a transformation of this world. There's to be a new heaven, a new earth. It's what we look forward to, and that's where we'll dwell. That's where we'll operate and function. And so the Greeks, as they're hearing that, they're beginning to teach that, proclaim that to their Greek neighbors. They're saying that doesn't make sense. It's the spiritual that really matters. Why would a God, first of all, suffer? And then if he dies, why would he come back physically? Why would he be a spiritual creature at that point? And the Greeks are beginning to, to question that. And so Paul asks a question there in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? And in these questions, he identifies the, the two most intellectually valued parties to, the, to these groups within Corinth. The, when he says, where is the one who is wise? The word there is behind it, the Greek word is sophist. It's a word we get sophisticated from. Where is the philosopher that is high and lofty and intellectual? Where is he? And then he says, what? Where's the teacher of the law? He, he says, where, he's addressing the Jewish audience there. He's saying, where is this one who, who understands all things about scriptures and so forth? When he's asking that question, what is he saying? He's saying essentially this. Who among such groups has really made an eternal difference in your life. You Greeks want to go to the philosophers. You Jews want to go to the teachers of the law, the scribes, as they were, are described elsewhere in Scripture. You want to go to these intellectuals. You want to feel important. You want to feel taught. You want to feel challenged intellectually. Paul's simple question is, has any of that ever really made a difference in your intellectual, or excuse me, in your eternal status? None of those people ever died for you. None of those people ever made a path or a way for you to connect with God. They've talked a lot about it. They've, they've, they've thrown out a lot of ideas and concepts. 
but ultimately they've not made the big difference. Now understand, Paul here is not saying that intellectualism or, or learning or knowledge or anything like that is an evil. Paul himself is probably one of the most educated individuals uh, of the Christian church, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi of his day. He knew all of these arguments. He knew all these perspectives. He knew all this knowledge, and God used that knowledge alongside Luke, who was what? A physician, also very educated, to do what? To give us the majority of the New Testament. Luke and Paul are responsible for over three-fourths of the New Testament. So this is not an anti-intellectualism that we're talking about here. This is simply a question of when it, when it all comes down to, and, and when you're thinking about these things, and when you're, 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 you're starting to question your faith, and when you're starting to, to question things because of the intellectual input that you might be receiving, Does any of that really ultimately change your destiny, your eternal destiny? No, it's a relationship with Christ. And so Paul says there at the end of verse 20, what? God has made world's wisdom foolishness. Because he's taken all these temporal things that we value so much, and he said, those aren't the priorities I have at all. people had also developed their, their own answers to man's problems. Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. What did the Jews want? The Jews wanted uh, human effort in the, in the realm of the miraculous. They wanted prophetic words. They wanted uh, miraculous actions. They, they wanted those sorts of things. If, if I could just see that. If I could just encounter that, then I'll know it's true. The Greeks, on the other hand, they, they wanted the logical argument that was so persuasive, so strong, so overwhelming that no one could refute it. For both, the cross was nonsense. And today we see, again, that, that, that same sort of argument. You, you, get, you get those people who are, man, just, just show me a miracle. Just, or God, just, just work in this particular way, then I'll know you're who you, who you say you are. God, fix this part of my life. Or God, deal with this part of my life. Or deal with this reality or situation. And, and then I'll know, God. Or on the other side, God, just, just remove all my doubts. I want arguments that are so sound, so logical, so reasonable that, that all my doubts are gone. And you, you hear these sort of responses. You, you hear these sorts of reasons for not believing. And it can sometimes become overwhelming. It can sometimes settle into doubt in our own hearts and minds. Why aren't we seeing the miracles that we see described in the book of Acts. Why can't I answer this question or this doubt? 
why do sometimes things in Scripture or things about God in particular seem so illogical? And really, the only answer I think we can, we can offer is that God's bigger than our categories. God's bigger than our expressions and, and desires. Yes, there are logical answers to a great many things about God. There are apologetics, and I strongly recommend searching out apologetics and, and books and, and websites and so forth that offer apologetic answers. Again, I'm, I'm not diminishing that. I'm simply saying that there is a point at which our logic can go no further. There's a point at which our expectations can reach no further. If God truly is God, then He has to be beyond our understandings. Otherwise, He's not God. Paul wraps this up by saying what in verse 25? God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What's he mean there? He means take, take the most foolish thing God has ever done, said whatever. Take the weakest thing God's ever accomplished and it's miles above the greatest thing man's ever thought or man's ever done. It's not even in the same conversation. And so what we see is that, that God has, has given us a what? He's given us this crucified Messiah to confound us, to make us think and, and look and say, that doesn't make any sense. And I really believe that in part, in part at least, God's response is, you're right, it doesn't make sense. That's what grace is. Sometimes, when you don't get what you deserve, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. The second argument I think Paul undertakes here is that God undoes our arrogance by revealing our unworthiness. I I I, I kind of chuckle when I read verse twenty six because this is this is Paul being Paul. I mean he's just he's just flat out blunt. He says, "You know what, y'all? Y'all y'all are thinking that the gospel doesn't measure up. The gospel doesn't make sense. The gospel's not logical. Well, that's a really good thing because y'all aren't wise. Y'all aren't powerful, and y'all ain't got nothing. If God were if if you were choosing a team." you're God and you're choosing a team to be on his side, you would be last selected. It's essentially what Paul says there in verse 26. And he's not saying that to run them down. He, he's saying this to, to everybody. He's including himself in that. He's not saying, I'm better than you. Y'all are worthless. He's saying we're all worthless. He's saying we're all worth unworthy. We're, we're all failing to measure up. You look at the apostles Jesus chose. 
Man, what a ragtag group. What a crazy selection of individuals. Fishermen, a zealot alongside a tax collector. You got to wonder the discussions that went around the fireplace at night with Simon the zealot sitting on one side and Matthew the tax collector, the, the so called traitor, on the other. How on earth did they ever even get along? Why would you pick those two to be side by side? You got impetuous Peter flying off the handle, never thinking through any decision he's ever made. And then getting caught because of his impetuousness. You got James and John arguing over who's going to be best, who's going to be greatest. God called out fire on those people. He's like, okay, I'm going to call you sons of thunder. You got Nathaniel, who's nobody's good enough. You got Thomas, who no idea is good enough. You have this group of people that, man, if you're, if you're picking a starting lineup, they're not going to be your choice. And yet that's who Jesus chose. And those men change the world. Paul is spending some time here trying to get the church at Corinth to see that you're not all that. And by extension, trying to get us to see that. Let me just say this. If you think you're worthy, you're wrong. But also, if you think your unworthiness makes you beyond help, you're also wrong. God's power, God's majesty, God's work begins with recognition by us that we're not worthy. And that he loves us anyway. I've said it before. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. And I don't say that to, to chastise. I say that to, to, to hopefully implant in your brain that that should be the most reassuring concept of any that we have as Christians. Because if God doesn't need us, that tells us he's here without any ulterior motives. He's not trying to manipulate you or he's not trying to, to win you over for his purposes. He's trying to do what he's doing. He's reaching out to you and, and where you're at and, and what you're going through. Simply because he loves you. So this should help us. This, this reality should help us, number one, understand that, that perfection is not possible. It's not possible. I came across a meme uh, uh, several months ago, and I've reflected on it uh, several times since then. I think there's some truth to it. It says, not going to church because of the hypocritical is as illogical as not going to the gym because it's full of out-of-shape people. 
Why do people go to the gym? Because they're out of shape and they need some help. Why do people come to church? Because we're not righteous and we need help. Perfection is not our goal. Relationship and walking with Jesus is. Also, self-righteousness is, is not warranted. If it's God's work, if it's God's transformation, if, if we truly are unworthy, then we should be walking around and responding like we're not worthy. Not in the sense of, oh, I can't do anything, I'm worthless, but in the sense of, praise God that He saved me, even though I didn't deserve it. Paul says, what? I, I, I'm not going to boast in my abilities. Why? Because my abilities really aren't what matter. It's Christ dwelling in me that matters. Now, to say perfection is not possible, to say self-righteousness is, is not warranted, is, is ultimately to say that integrity and humility must be what drives us as believers. I, I can't be perfect, but I can be a person of integrity that owns up when I make mistakes, that seeks to live a life of truth, seeks to walk with Christ with authenticity, And humble enough to realize I need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. The third thing that Paul says reflects here is that God undoes our self-interest by advocating an unassuming approach. We hear a lot about styles and so forth in the church. And exactly what we should be doing to engage our culture. And I don't have the answers to that. I don't know where that line is drawn between doing something that's engaging and doing something that's full of integrity. I don't know where that line becomes crossed or so forth. Sometimes I, I see some of the things churches are doing and, and I, I just shake my head. And I'm not really sure if that's the right thing to do or why they're doing that. I shared in Sunday school this morning of a church uh, east of here that uh, in their baptistry, when they do a baptism, confetti cannons go off. You know. Okay, I get it. You want to celebrate, but if, if that's what you're doing, are we losing, are we, I don't know, are we losing the message someplace in that? I don't know any kid who's going to be sitting out there in the congregation thinking, man, I want to be up there. I want confetti cannons going off too. I want the sirens and the lights and all that when I get dunked. Let me in on that. But they're doing what? They're trying to make it exciting. They're trying to make it relevant. They're trying to make it connected which is a worthwhile goal on many levels, but where do we lose the emphasis of the message in moving in that direction? How do we find that balance 
Well, I think Paul's answer is simply get rid of your self-interest. Get rid of your self-interest. Why do you decide to be a part of a congregation? Why do you decide to, to leave a congregation? Why do you decide to, to do it? Is it because God is moving? Because God is directing? Because God has laid something on your heart that says that's where I need to be? Or is it, well, I'm just not satisfied with what's going on there. Notice what Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 2. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Now understand this, Paul could have. He was capable of crafty speech. How do I know that? Because he demonstrates that in the book of Acts at Athens, the city that he was in just before he comes to Corinth. He comes to Athens and he goes to the Areopagus, the place where the philosophers debate. And he stands in front of them and he says, friends and neighbors, I notice that you have an altar to an unknown God over here. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. And he used the environment and he used his logic and he used his reason and he used all of these things to, to get a hearing among these philosophers. Paul had it in him to make this sort of presentation. Very educated man. But in the very next city he comes to, as he enters it, he's like, that, that's not going to be my approach here. That's not going to be my way of dealing with these people. I'm just going to do what? I'm just going to preach Christ crucified. I'm just going to tell them who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And what he wants to do in their life. Why? So that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The one who brags, brags because God is good. Because God is powerful. Because God is great. I'm convinced that a big part of the reason that we have a growing number of atheists and, and non-committed and non-interested in the church today, in the world today, is because the church is not living like God is the greatest, like God is the most powerful, like God is the most wonderful. We sing songs, we read the words, but we don't live it. There's no excitement. There's no joy. There's no power. And so we're unattractive. We're like the, the traveling salesman from the old days who's a, a little scrawny, wiry guy. He's got this potion, this elixir. It'll make you strong. It'll make you healthy. It'll make you wonderful. And He's trying to sell it to the audience, and they say, do you drink it? He says, well, I certainly do. He goes, then I don't need that. Because there's nothing about him that says he's strong or he's powerful or he's energetic. 
potion obviously doesn't work. And that's what Christians have become. We've become people who walk around who say, God is great, or God is good, or God is wonderful, or you need God in your life, or you need, you need a change, or you need a transformation. But we're living as if nothing has happened, and He doesn't matter. We are saved by His grace. We are, as Paul says earlier in the passage, we are being saved by His grace. Again, I'm not advocating for perfection here. I'm simply advocating for a life that says Christ makes a difference. He makes a difference in how I respond to hurt. He makes a difference in how I respond to persecution. He makes a difference in how I respond to good things. He makes a difference in how I respond to, to people who are my enemies. He makes a difference in how I respond to people who are my loved ones. He makes a difference in who I am. How do we do that? We don't do that by trying harder. We don't do that by sitting here and saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to do better today, preacher. We do it by submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit and letting Him work in us, guide us, and listening when He says, go. Listening when He says, this is how you respond. Listening when He says, this is how I want you to speak in this circumstance, this situation. Being attentive to what God's Word has said and being responsive to what His Holy Spirit continues to say. That's what God's calling us to. That's what it means to be a believer who's walking in the power of God. That's the type of life that's going to respond to these new atheists. Because they can make all the rational arguments they want to make. But they can't deny the testimony of a person who's been transformed by the Spirit of God. And that needs to be where we start in all our conversations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your spirit that empowers and enlivens and encourages and teaches. God, I pray that you would help us to be responsive, to listen and obey, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who doesn't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that whatever the objections they formulated, whatever the arguments they're leaning on to resist and to Refuse responding to your drawing, God. I pray that you would break through those barriers, that you'd open their eyes and help them to see the glory that you are and the life that you offer. God, I pray for myself and my fellow believers here that you would help us to, to live lives of power, help us to live lives that communicate the worth of what it means to walk with you. Lord, guide us. 
use us, shape us. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.